Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan, a presence on sermon audio for Puritan and Reformed audiobook recordings. For more recordings, go to sermonaudio.com and do a search at the narrated Puritan. The following is reading of a pamphlet called The Baptists Are the Only Thorough Reformers. John Quincy Adams, 1876. The following lectures have a peculiar history. They were originally delivered to the Baptist Church in Caldwell, New Jersey, in the ordinary course of pastoral labors in that place, and were not then intended for the press. At the urgent request of those who heard them, the author was induced to give them to the public. They were delivered from eager notes, and from these, as his copy, the author himself, a practical printer set up the types of the first edition, which was published in 1858. As much of the matter was thus extemporized, at the case, the entire book was never written. The late excellent Spencer H. Cohn, D.D., then pastor of the First Baptist Church of New York City, read the proofs, and so well pleased was he with the work that he ordered the first 50 copies for his own church, recommending it from his pulpit as well as by the notice which appears among the recommendations. Several editions were printed during the few following years, and the work was widely circulated through the country and seems to have given a new phase to the baptismal controversy by directing attention to the great principles which underlie the action of the Baptist denomination. It shows that these principles, though based on God's word, are constantly violated by Protestant paedo-baptists, though they profess to be governed by that word. Not a few of these have been led by the perusal of previous editions to see the utter inconsistency of paedo-baptism with the principles of the New Testament, and have renounced it, and united with the Baptist denomination. Among these, several high-honored and useful brethren now in the ministry of the denomination might be named. A reading from the 5th edition, 1856. He aimed the reproach and the triumph of the religious reformer. These have turned the world upside down, or come hither also. Act 17. It has always been the policy of the advocates of error. When unable to sustain themselves by sophistry, specious reasoning and false logic, to stigmatize the advocates of the truth as innovators, disturbers of the peace, and dangerous to the harmony and interests of the community. Such was the course pursued by those who uttered the language of the text, Paul and Silas having been released from the Macedonian prison, where they had been confined for preaching the gospel, took their departure from Philippi and passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. Here Paul, according to his usual custom, met the Jewish rabbis and teachers and reasoned with them out of the Old Testament scriptures concerning Jesus of Nazareth, proving to them that he was the Messiah. His reasoning on the subject was so forcible that many of the Jews were convinced and professed their faith in the Savior that stirred up the hatred and envy of the discomfited rabbis, and finding themselves unable to cope with the superior logic and masterly reasoning of Paul, they enlisted the prejudices of the rabbis, and gathered a mob and created a riot and endeavored to lay violent hands on the disciples, and thus accomplished by force and superior numbers 
what they could not effect by fair argument. Their accusation against the disciples is contained in the words of the text, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. My theme is the aim, the reproach, and the triumph of the religious reformer. Number one, the aim of the religious reformer. A reformer is one who seeks to remove abuses which have crept into an organization or community, or one who boldly enters a field where error has held undisputed sway and fearlessly wields amid giant powers of opposition the weapons of truth. He aims to entirely revolutionize the minds of the community in which he labors, that particular subject where he believes reform is to be needed. A compromise between truth and error is not what he seeks and will not satisfy him. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is his motto. Old systems of error, however sacred on account of their antiquity, he boldly attacks. Though massive darkness has long brooded over the people, he aims to dissipate the gloom and shed upon them brilliant rays of light. His work is a mighty one. The end for which he labors is noble and sublime. He holds a position in advance of the community in which he resides, and the age in which he lives. Hence he possesses traits of character that are peculiar, which fit him to toil and suffer for the accomplishment of his designs. A spirit of noble daring is his. He fears not to grapple with air, though sanctioned by age and supported by popular favor. He scruples not, if need be, to stand alone as a champion of truth. With undaunted intrepidity, he braves a world's dread laugh or meets its frown. With the spirit of indomitable perseverance, he steadily adheres to his purpose and determinedly pursues his single object. Every obstacle thrown across his path affords a new incentive to increased activity. Every difficulty he meets only gives new strength and inspires fresh courage. He is not to be turned aside, having put his hand to the plow. He looks not back. Self-sacrificing effort and benevolent labor are his. His time, talents, property are all laid upon the altar of truth. He toils not to achieve a name, to amass wealth, or to advance a sect. He labors for the good of others, while often he receives only their hatred, reproach, and persecution. If there is one picture on earth that reminds us more than any other of the meek and lowly Savior, it is the spirit and conduct of the Reformer, patiently suffering at the hands of those whose moral elevation he labors to effect. And here is a test by which a true and false reformer may be tried and discovered. Infidelity boasts of seeking a reform, but when did infidelity ever inspire its advocates with the spirit of self-denial for the good of others? Where are its sacrifices made to benefit and elevate the human race? Did infidelity ever suffer to benefit man? Does it today go forth as an angel of mercy to labor, to suffer, and to bless? No. No, but the true reformer has a high purpose, a benevolent aim. He occupies holy ground and he can suffer, unjustly suffer, to benefit his fellow men. Let us notice, secondly, the reproach of the reformer. All reforms are intended with agitation and conflict, but none more so than reforms in religion. At first a reformer may attract but little attention, his attacks on air may appear so feeble 
and his efforts to advance the truth may seem so faint that the opponents of truth may esteem only the smile of ridicule and scorn necessary to throw his work into insignificance, slight exertion of authority sufficient to extinguish it. But let him continue with boldness, energy, and eloquence to plead for truth and begin to make an impression upon the public mind and gather adherents around him. Then will his adversaries become agitated and alarmed, like the fierce storm lashing into foam the waters of the mighty deep. They stir up the popular mind until the entire community moves in angry surges, and persecution and violence ensue. The more bold the onset, the more forcible the elucidation of truth. The more numerous the adherence to the reform, the more fiercely will the advocates of error oppose the effort, and the more desperately will they seek to crush by force or circumvent by cunning what they cannot master by argument or defeat by logic. So moving forward in this tract, the exaltation of the Word of God above tradition and all manners of religious duty. There has always been a conflict between divine revelation and human tradition, and yet the advocates of the latter have almost invariably endeavored to reconcile it with the former. And thus the Word of God is often distorted in vain efforts to make it support that which is of merely human origin. The ultimate effect of these efforts is to divide the Bible against itself and to cause it to be utterly disregarded as a standard of appeal and manners of religious duty. And with us was the tradition of the Jewish elders, those who followed them and practiced their rites, ceased to regard the scriptures which they possessed as a standard of duty. They became a dead letter in the tradition of the elders, not the scriptures, was the authority they cited for the support of their rites. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. On what does the papacy rest to support its penances and image worship and prayers to the saints and priestly absolutions, and in short, its very existence, are apply in one word, tradition. Let the Bible become her standard, and she would cease to exist. She has made almost every commandment of God of none effect by her tradition. Thus it is also with Protestant paedo-baptist churches. Tradition is the basis on which infant sprinkling rests. We look in vain for any command in reference to it in the Bible. The scriptures utter not a word in support of it. The most able paedobaptists have themselves admitted this. Says Dr. Leonard Woods, an eminent paedobaptist, whatever may have been the precepts of Christ or his apostles, to those who enjoyed their personal instructions, it is plain there is no express precept respecting infant baptism in our sacred writings. The proof then that infant baptism is a divine institution must be made out some other way. He says further, the lack of an express positive command of scripture that infants should be baptized is not to be considered as a valid objection against infant baptism. It is here plainly admitted that there is no command for infant baptism in the word of God. But we do not need these admissions to substantiate our assertion. We simply appeal to the Bible itself. If it was there, we could see it for ourselves. 
we ask anyone to show us the first instance of the sprinkling of an infant, or any command to administer baptism to infants that cannot be found. Thousands of dollars have been offered for the production of a single text authorizing the practice. But these premiums have never been claimed. On what then does it rest? I reply, on tradition. Dr. Wood says that authority for it may be afforded particularly by an unwritten tradition. It is a human invention having no higher authority than that of man. It is one of the traditions which the Protestant reformers brought from Rome. It is the main pillar on which popery rests. For if you take away the baptism of infants, Rome would soon fall. Its defense necessitates Romish arguments, and instances are not wanting where paedobaptists and combating Romanists have either been compelled to use arguments fatal to their own practices, or else be defeated. And it is a matter of history that Protestant arguments against Baptists have often been used by Romanists against Protestants themselves. A forcible proof of this is seen in the following extract from the Roman Catholic Catechism question. Can Protestants prove to Baptists that the baptism of infants is good and useful? No, they cannot, because according to Protestant principles, such baptism is useless. Question, why do you say this? Answer, one of the Protestant principles is that no human being can be justified except by an act of faith in Jesus Christ. But no infant is capable of making this act of faith. Therefore, upon Protestant principles, the baptism of infants is useless. Question, can you draw the same consequence from any other principle? Answer, yes. Their first principle is that nothing is to be practiced which is not authorized by scriptural example. But it does not appear from scripture that even one infant was ever baptized. Therefore, Protestants should reject on their own principle infant baptism as an unscriptural usage. Question, how do Baptists treat other Protestants? Answer, they boast that the scripture is evidently for Baptist practice. That other Protestants hold traditional doctrines like the Catholics. They quote Matthew chapter 28, Go teach all nations, baptizing them, from which they say it is clear that teaching should go before baptism. Hence they conclude that as infants cannot be taught, so neither should they be baptized until they are capable of teaching or instruction. Question, what use do they make of Mark chapter 10? He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Answer, they say it is evident that belief or faith must precede baptism. But they add infants are not capable of believing, therefore neither are they capable of being baptized. Question, what can Protestants reply to this Baptist reasoning? Answer, they may give these passages another meaning but they can never prove that their interpretation is better than that of the Baptists because they themselves give everyone a right to interpret Scripture. Question, how do Catholics prove that infants ought to be baptized? Answer, not from Scripture alone, which is not very clear on this subject, but from the Scripture illustrated by the constant tradition of the Church. Question, can Protestants use this argument of tradition against the Baptists? Answer, no, they have no right to use it in this manner, where it would serve them since they reject it in every question where it is opposed to their novel and lately invented doctrines, end quote. Says the president of the famous Council of Trent, a Roman Catholic cardinal, speaking of the Baptists, quote, And surely 
how many soever have written against this heresy, whether they were Catholics or Reformers, they were able to overthrow it, not so much by the testimony of the Scriptures as by the authority of the Church. And Bale, in his critical dictionary, says that the Protestants were obliged to meet the Baptists with arguments which were turned against them by the Papists. Dr. Woods furnishes us an illustration of this assertion, he says, It is unquestionable that the knowledge of some extraordinary event of providence or of some divine injunctions may be as truly and as certainly communicated in this way, by an unwritten tradition, as in others. And we should in many cases consider a man who should refuse to admit the truth and authority of a tradition to be as unreasonable as if he should refuse to admit the authority of written or printed records. Now I ask, if this is not given up to Rome all she claims, we should consider a man who should refuse to admit the authority of tradition to be as unreasonable as if he should refuse to admit the authority of written or printed records. Will not Popery heartily endorse this doctrine? Now, on what kind of traditionary authority does infant sprinkling rest? Why, upon the same as every other corruption of Rome. And if Romish tradition be followed in this case, why not in all others? Thus we have shown that infant sprinkling requires Romish arguments. Now, the simple reason of this is, like that the other rites of poetry, it is founded in tradition. Further, the commandment of God is made of none effect by this tradition. God has given express and plain commands, in reference to every duty and ordinance. He has commanded believers to be baptized. He has extended the command to none others. Those baptized in infancy, in a multitude of cases, grow up in unbelief and never become believers. But where they do become converts, they are taught by the tradition of the church that their infant baptism is sufficient. Then they are not expected to be baptized after believing. And even when persons sprinkled in infancy are led by the study of the Bible to desire baptism after they have believed, strong efforts are always made to dissuade them from it. And they are often compelled to go to the Baptists in order to be baptized. These things are of such common occurrence that it is unnecessary to relate instances in proof. Thus the word of God is made of no effect. Again, Pedobaptists, like the Jewish elders, endeavor to reconcile their tradition with the word of God. Look at their reasoning. Whoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Pedobaptists say, If any person be sprinkled in infancy, and be not baptized after they believe, it is sufficient. There is an exact parallel. Here you perceive the reasonings of men in both instances, though opposed to the express command of God, are made a standard instead of his word. Would it not sound strange to hear a Pado-Baptist minister urge his people to simply follow the teaching and example of Christ in reference to baptism? Yet this is right, but this comes directly in contact with their tradition. Now, Baptists are opposed to tradition anywhere and everywhere, whether they find it in the Church of Rome or in Protestant churches. They aim to elevate the Word of God above tradition, as a standard of duty in all places. It is professedly the grand doctrine of Protestantism, which Protestants themselves have abandoned, 
the Baptists steadily maintain. They aim to bring all to this standard. They themselves have always adhered to the Bible. Did anyone ever hear a Baptist being charged with following tradition? The charge would be ridiculously absurd, for they have always supposed tradition as a guide in manners of religious duty. From these remarks, it will be perceived that while the subjects and mode of baptism is the external ground of difference between Baptists and others, that difference involves a great principle, and the primary question is not, shall infants be baptized, but whether God's word or tradition shall be our guide. God has uttered his will in the matter. That will we follow as we find it in his word. Those who oppose us by their own showing follow tradition. We are laboring to effect a reform. In doing so, we refer all to the Bible. We assert its supremacy above all human teaching, our own as well as that of others. This, then, is a prominent feature of the reform in which Baptists are engaged, and I observe it is most important and necessary, especially it is necessary in combating error. If tradition be allowed in one particular, who will prohibit it in another? Romanism is gaining ground in this country. It is a religion of tradition. Who will oppose it? Those who are themselves trammeled by tradition? To every argument they can retort, as they have done, where do you get your infant sprinkling? The most staunch Romanist asks nothing more than that the adoption of the principle contained in the language already quoted of a Protestant paedo-baptist in support of infant sprinkling, quote, we should consider a man who should refuse to admit the truth and authority of tradition to be as unreasonable as if he should refuse to admit the truth of written and or printed records, end quote. No paedo-baptist can consistently oppose Romanism. There is no consistent position between the Romish and the Baptist church. Tradition leads to the one, the word of God to the other. Infidelity and rationalism also are rearing their heads in our midst. And who shall meet them? Their cry is priestcraft and ministerial dictation. Who shall meet them? Those who suffer their ministers to tell them what to believe and to dictate whether they shall investigate a subject or not. No, but those who are prepared by an independent investigation and a manly appeal to the Bible to show the falsity of their charges. This feature of reform is necessary. Secondly, to the purity of the church. No organization can be pure without a pure standard. Tradition is liable to perversion. There is no certainty about it. Today it assumes one position, tomorrow an opposite one. Thus it has ever been. The Church of Rome, though claiming infallibility, has constantly changed her ground of action because governed by the variable standard of tradition. This is no less true of Protestant paedobaptism. Today infants are sprinkled on one ground, tomorrow that ground is abandoned, and another directly opposite to it is urged as a reason for administering the right. Anon, both these are abandoned, and a new position with a new set of arguments is introduced. This is strikingly illustrated in the experience of Simon Minow, a Romish priest who in 1580 was converted to Christ, and to Baptist sentiments, by reading the New Testament, he says, quote, I examined the scriptures with diligence and meditated on them, earnestly, but could find in them no authority for infant baptism. As I remarked this, I spoke of it to my pastor, and after several conversations he acknowledged that infant baptism had no ground in the scriptures. Yet I dare not trust so much to my understanding, 
I consulted some ancient authors who taught me that children must, by baptism, be washed from their original sin. This I compared with the scriptures and perceived that it said it not the blood of Christ. Afterward, I went to Martin Luther, and would gladly have known from him the ground, and he taught me that we must baptize children on their own faith because they are holy. This also I saw was not according to God's word. In the third place, I went to Martin Brucer, who taught me that we should baptize children in order to be able to more diligently to take care of them and bring them up in the ways of the Lord. But this too, I saw, was a groundless representation. In the fourth place, I had recourse to Henry Bullinger, who pointed me to the covenant of circumcision. But I found, as before, that according to Scripture, the practice could not stand. As I now on every side observed that the writer stood on ground so very different, and each followed his own reason, I saw clearly that we were deceived with infant baptism, end quote. Can the church be pure with such a contradictory guide? Is tradition? Never. Finally, I inquired, does the charge of the text lie against any of my Christian brethren? If you have neglected baptism since you believe, because you were sprinkled in infancy, it most assuredly does. Your sprinkling rests on tradition. The Bible says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. If because sprinkled in infancy you refuse now to obey Christ, we say to you, in his own truthful language, thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Number four, this is strikingly illustrated in the celebrated letters of Kerwin. The Reverend Dr. Murray, a Protestant Pado Baptist, to Bishop Hughes, he says, quote, Once secure a just and scriptural view of the character of a true minister of Christ, and of the great end of a gospel ministry, and the whole framework of popery vanishes, end quote. A true minister is one who, with the love of God, and of the salvation of men filling his soul, to all the ways which providence opens before him, preaching everywhere, as did Peter and Paul, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He has only one object, to lead men to the knowledge of the truth. He goes out with an open Bible to expound it, praying that the Holy Spirit may so apply his truths to the hearts of his hearers, that they may be created anew in Christ Jesus unto good works. To those who believe, he administers the rite of baptism. And as God gives him opportunity, he administers the Lord's Supper to the faithful for the purpose of commemorating the death of Christ until he comes the second time without sin unto salvation. For the ministers of Christ before the rise of popery, and such only are the true ministers of Christ now, in quote, Kerwin's letters to Bishop Hughes. Second series, pages 90 and 91. And we'll stop there for this podcast. And Lord willing, pick up with this book, Baptists, the Only Thorough Reformers by John Quincy Adams.